Is Climate Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on Earth and came up with a hypothesis we wanted to test. If you believe in climate change, the only way we'll get past these massive environmental problems is if for profit companies get involved. In other words, we've spent hundreds of years getting into this mess. We'll need to spend billions, maybe trillions, getting out of it. Therefore, companies need to make money in order for someone to spend it. Then we asked, can we speak with a dozen or so companies in different verticals of climate tech who are making it part of their mission to be climate conscious and making big bucks while doing it? Well, we did just that. Thus, Climate Mayhem was born. So follow Jacob Kubica and I along as we listen to some incredible stories to test this hypothesis. Oh, and are you an entrepreneur about to get into this space? You will definitely learn something from these extremely impressive founders and operators of just how possible it is to take on a seemingly impossible task. Mayhem on, Jacob. Mayhem on, Ty. Grant Canary is founder and CEO of DroneSeed, which reforests after wildfires using heavy lift drone swarms. Yes, swarms of machines in the air. Grant has focused his entire career on sustainability, including working for the U.S. Green Building Council when it was young, is a Malago Foundation Fellow, and a grist list of 50 fixers. You should definitely Google that one. It is harder Jacob, to... Jacob, I'm going to go ahead and jump in here because Grant is a cool guy, and Drone Seed, not only does that one of the coolest names out there, and they do amazing things, you know, flying drones around, planting seeds. They have a huge army of people helping plant those seeds as well. But they also, for me, the thing that excites me about this episode is I finally connected the dots about what is a true carbon offset. You know, we've all heard about these big companies buying carbon offsets, Spotify buying car. What does it mean? What are they actually buying? Well, listen up, because on this episode, Grant is going to connect the dots for you too. Drone Seed is a cool company. No doubt. And we dive deep into what's a maggot entrepreneur? How is carbon recapture on a small scale only a feel-good product? And finally, how is the average tree planter a superhero? Stay tuned. Enjoy. Grant. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hello, hello. My pleasure. It's an honor to have you. Ty mentioned he had actually been following your company oh, for yeah. the past four or five years. Is that right, Ty? Oh, yeah. Been, yeah, I've been obsessed with what Drone Seed's doing here in the Seattle area. Just curious. I, you know, I don't get it all, and I hopefully we'll get to dig into some of that. But I, yeah, I've been super infatuated with uh, what you guys have been doing and following the progress a bit. Well, thank you. Yeah. I thought we'd start off with a little bit of a past life. Grant, what's a maggot entrepreneur? And <laughs> how are you one of these? Well, so a maggot entrepreneur, very non-traditionally, 
I started a company cultivating maggots. Okay. For some people, that's that's awful. That sounds like a terrible line of work. But for me, that was uh, the ability to take food waste and feed it to insects and turn it into protein. Now, another, I, I'm not in favor, you know, not not bullish. We'll say not bullish on um, protein from insects for humans. A lot of people do do that, but where I'm very bullish is on protein for industrial protein for industrial fish feed specifically and that's because we've been overfishing not just at the higher rungs of the food chain but with the smallest species which get ground up and turned into fish meal which then goes into feed for farm fish and we're going to expand fish which is one of the most efficient forms of converting protein other than plants then we're going to need a more sustainable food source for them and they need protein. And so by taking food waste, we could cultivate those insects, fish already insects. That's why fly fishing exists. And then be able to do an industrial level protein. And also we waste a lot of food for good and bad reasons each and every year in the supply chain. And so yeah. wow. that was my first company I spent nine years of life on and um, wow. built it out of Bogota, Colombia. And uh, it was acquired and a lot of the companies that you see today, Insect, there's a couple, AgriProtein, we're accessing some of the, a lot of the research I'd compiled on my blog for public consumption to basically get that space started. And so after acquisition, built a uh, 6,000 square foot pilot facility, uh, 60,000 square foot wow. after that, and they're still going strong today. So wow. excited about that. Dang. And why Bogota of all places? I was following my master's thesis and had been a part of a very large JP Morgan England project. They, as the Kyoto Protocol, they wanted a large source of carbon offsets. There had been a 20-year pilot project called uh, Las Gaviotas, which is a United Nations recognized project. And so was part of a consulting team to figure out how much would it cost to do something like a, you know, a Denali National Park in the Northeast of Colombia, scaling up this existing project that existed there. And um, wow. that required a lot of people, about 20,000 people. And that meant a lot of infrastructure to support them. And so one of the technologies, well, what do we do with all the food waste? Well, and that's where I started getting interested here. So I turned yeah, that into my master's thesis. And one of the reasons that I did it in Bogota was I didn't want to go into deep student debt. I wanted to go abroad. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, I you know, didn't have a lot of capital. So being able to fund a master's thesis abroad was a lot more capital efficient, allowed me to create a pilot facility, hire four research teams, bring equipment in from Vietnam, et cetera, on less than what most people would pay for you know, uh, a used car. Wow. Very smart. Nice. Very smart. Okay. So I have to ask real quick, it was maggots, not mealworms. I've heard in like the insect protein world of mealworms a lot more, but this wasn't mealworms. This was not mealworms. This was Hermetia illucens, which is uh, commonly called black soldier fly. And one of the things that is awesome about them is they are incredibly difficult to kill. So uh, you can <laughs> see this. some of the... <laughs> they're there if you watch any of the csis they're the ones that show up on cadavers 30 days later not ah. the first ones to show up and um there's some phenomenal time lapse of them eating fish and hamburgers and other things they are able to sense what is live and dead flesh and focus on that so anyway the the they're they're, <laughs> they're phenomenally interesting i mean they're still yeah. used today 
by people for burn victims, wow. gunshot wounds, et cetera. You could actually go to a medical treatment facility today. This, this sounds like a horror movie. I'm not sure if this is where you guys want to start, <laughs> no, no, but um, right. this is good. This it's, uh, they will consume the dead flesh while leaving the live flesh if you have a burn or a gunshot or something wow. that's been festering. They were used in the Civil wow. War. They're still used today. Amazing. They're great teammates. All right. Yeah. I love it. So, and unlike crickets or other things, crickets are incredibly difficult, need a whole lot of space. If you mess up the space requirements, they start, they turn into locusts and eat each other. They require an immense amount of heat and other things. So like not bullish on crickets. There are other species beyond Hermetia lucens that are, you know, completely functional, but uh, that's one that I think has some significant advantages. Black soldier flies, that's what you call them, right? Yep. So I don't know if that's what I had at my house, but I've been trying to learn how to compost over here. And it was, you know, it was a hot summer over here. And I'd noticed all the flies hanging around my compost. And, you know, about a week later, I found so many maggots at the bottom of my compost bin. It became this huge project over three hours of how do we get rid of these maggots? They were so hard. I was doing I was doing hot water with salt. I didn't do the fire thing I should on fire. And we tried so many different things, you know, like rolling this over to my girlfriend's mom's house and just leaving wow. it there. We, we couldn't, what? We, we didn't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Resilient, resilient little, little creatures. Okay. All right. Very cool. And what's a, Grant, what's, what's a tree machine gun? Heard about this. Yeah. Well, so tree machine gun. So this is one of the things that I like to to point out as far as good product development. So when we got started as Drone Seed, we very much went into the community and asked a lot of people, anyone I could find in my network in forestry, what's been done in the space with technology? Mm-hmm. What's been tried? What has not worked? What mm-hmm. what what are your pain points, etc.? This is all covered in like Lean Startup or any of the other books mm-hmm. on product management. And so I got some stories about in the 1970s dropping trees out of the back of C-17s, or there was a tree machine gun, which the idea I guess was to shoot trees into the ground. The the, the purpose here being that like when a tree is more precision located. It's in a microsite as the industry term or a, a place that is better soil, has more shade. So the soil stays moister. A good example of a microsite is like a stump. Next to a stump, there's a whole bunch of dead decaying roots that leave the soil mm. open for new roots to come in. Usually if it's right next to the stump, it gives a little bit of shade during the day, etc. So somebody had tried a tree machine gun, but there's a lot of literature out there now, not in the 70s, that just dropping a tree off the back of a truck a couple of feet can be detrimental to the the tree's long-term survival or establishment, maybe in years one to three, maybe in years, later years, depends on the species, et cetera. And so tree machine gun like understood the like direction they were trying to go, more precision, but the like they didn't have that research at that time of, um, you know, the Nokia phone dropper, but for trees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they, they hadn't gone through that, that, that practice. And, but this is just very much an example of like, how do we learn from what the community's already tried and then yeah. build on that? And what we, what we learned was one of the big, the big challenges is terrain for replanting and tree planters carrying 40 pounds of one to two year old trees and bags on their hips. They go planting up a mountain, 
then they got to go walk back and then reload and fill back up and then go plant up again, et cetera. And the drones had a significant advantage in that they fly and navigating that terrain is something that's much easier. And so that, and then the ability to do that with more precision than a C-17, than a helicopter right. or a plane, et cetera, would be something that the community was interested in. So that's where we got started. But I have to ask, like, is it actually, was it actually like a gun-shaped thing that shot these things out? Like, what was the actual, what is this thing look like? You're going to have to have uh, Matthew Guy, our, our, our head of biological R&D, because apparently <laughs> he has seen it. I have not okay. seen it. Okay. And so is is met with some old timers in the sense that we, we love to get some of the input about what's been tried and then also some of the yeah. data that's been collected from people measuring tree growth and climate and things like that, those logs are incredibly useful in some cases. And because it takes so much time to acquire data in forestry, because it takes a long time for trees to grow if they're temperate conifers. So yeah. yeah. Still imagining a gun like shaped thing yeah. shooting out little saplings. I don't know. I don't know how it works, <laughs> but it's such a great visual. I imagine Sylvester Stallone, like Rambos, like these are, the, <laughs> these are the employees. They got like, you know, tank tops and they got these amazing, huge guns. That's maybe we'll find it's some amazing. images online. And well, well, where I can take us with that is to say kind of where we evolved was similarly, we started out looking at like, great, well, let's look at paintball and see if oh, there is something we can shoot seeds and do that in a more precision way. We evolved yeah. from that and now we drop a seed vessel in which the seed is already embedded. So it's already in like a hockey puck sized type of vessel. And, and wow. I want to be a little cagey about how I describe the vessel for intellectual property reasons, but it's an organic natural fiber. And what it does is it allows the seed to um, have access to water because it soaks up that moisture. And then it also has some deterrent. Super spicy pepper is one of the ones that we've uh, wow. explained. It's the same stuff that's in bear mace, capsaicin, uh, or yeah. the same kind of origin as um, yeah, if you're a YouTube video watcher and you like watching people eat super spicy stuff, um, <laughs> yeah. Carolina Reapers and ghost peppers and things like that, very high Scoville count, which is the scientific nice. measure of spiciness. So squirrels, mice, goal there Stay is deter them in the same way yeah. that deters people from picking up a taco and being like, great, well, this has a whole ghost pepper on it. Um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair. I like it. Graham, when did you start thinking about climate action, climate change. I saw your whole career has been in sustainability. Had, were you thinking about this at a young age? Yes. I had an English teacher help me sort of figure out where my, what, what I wanted to spend time on. And um, it wasn't a direct like, well, let's just have sit down and like figure out what you want to do with your life. It was much more of like a exposure to value systems and uh, other 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 piece, pieces of philosophy. And I guess what I came to the conclusion on was, what's the like highest order of magnitude problem I could I could throw myself at? And to me, that became you know like I had somebody else that uh, later on in life helped me sort of put that into words, but like climate change is the problem all the problems report to. And which which is the reason being is, and I, I'm sure I've already tripped up somebody who's like, well, what about this? And what about this? And it's systemic and they're all interrelated. Well, yes. And the all of the other problems that people could be spending on time on that we could all agree from a fundamental human perspective, they should be spending on time that has to do with medical or has to do with, with rights, et cetera. Mm -hmm. 
if people are in a dust bowl scenario or a, you know, take it out of the Euro European example of like great hunger in China. Um, if they're in a first order needs of where do I get food? How do I protect my family? They're not right. working on those medical problems. They're not working on rights, et cetera. And that is really what climate change is taking us in that direction is, is putting extreme stress on the political, the social, the economic structures in which we all rely on to do the good work. So the the highest order of magnitude is to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. The thing that like really resonates or hit home for me is that like prior generations have lived through like what used to be sort of, well, we used to feel like more of a resolved problem of like, oh yeah, we lived through the, the Soviet missile crisis. We lived through like the threat of nuclear annihilation. Like, we'll get through it. And, and I guess what I would say is like, the bombs have already landed with climate change. So yeah. it's not a like, oh, well, we'll avoid it. It's a no, it already happened. But like mm-hmm. the effects will be felt over the next 50 years, and wow. next 100 years. And so that to me is like an incredibly, this distinguishes us from prior generations that have gone through those challenges and those struggles, whether it was World War Two, or whether it was a Cold War, or whether it was the Korean War, etc., into a place of like, no, the bad thing already happened and <laughs> right, it's right. continuing to happen. It's it, the, the bombs are continuing to land, if you will. And that is something that that's a climate sort of doomism. Uh, what I want to do is spend all of my time trying to figure out how to build the brightest possible future, given those circumstances. And that's something that I, that, that I want to speak to, you know, in, in this conversation. Hmm. Love it. Well, that, that does bring me to the next piece. So typically here, we start to dig into maybe like the start of the company, but I felt a little bit like with this particular subject, we had to go back another layer, which is, I realized I didn't understand, I guess, the business of reforestation uh, without, you know, for lack of a better term, I didn't understand, you know, and I never really thought about it. Like we have forest fires or we have some natural catastrophe and then something does have to happen for us to like get that forest back. Who does that? What is this business look like? If I can say it that way, I know it's oversimplifying, but can you talk to us a little bit about the history of the business of reforestation, at least in our country, at least here in the United States? Yeah, I, I mean, happy to. Let's let's go there. Um, the history is we generally relied on nature and forest burns, forest regrows. It was like what most people, myself included, were taught in high school biology. And that's, that's you know, fire is part of the natural ecology and what, you know, what, what's this whole industry that has to re- regenerate forests? Like, no, the forest will take care of it itself. Well, where we're at today is that's increasingly becoming less and less the case due to the size and severity of wildfires. So I'm kind of getting going straight to the ending here. There's a little bit more history of how sure. we got here. But the net effect is that it used to be like 90% of the time forest burns for forest regrows. That's with a low severity fire. A low severity fire, it is not destroying, it's not burning up or consuming the seed that's stored in the soil. It's not burning all the way up to the top of the tree where a lot of those cones are for temperate conifers. It's sort of coming across the landscape like a creme brulee. And it sort of burns the top of the soil, but most of the stuff below is fine. And it sort of burns the big bushy bits in the middle, but the tops of the trees are fine. And that's where the trees evolved to have a lot of the the cones then became seed rain that become the next forest. When you have a high severity fire goes through, those big dark black clouds are a lot of the organic topsoil that's burning up in the fire in addition to other biomass. And that includes the seeds that are stored in the soil. 
And it also is going all the way up to the top of the tree. So it sort of looks like one of those Looney Tunes trees struck by lightning. It's all of a sudden yeah. like it's there, there's no greenery up top there with a couple of cones that'll rain, rain down seed. It's just completely consumed. And so then you take it and it's like, well, it's no longer a 10,000 acre fire, which was kind of the history from the, you know, the last, uh, you know, used to used to be that there was like 10,000 acre fires and the industry had 10 years to respond to them. Well, now it's obviously no longer the case. That was back in the 80s, 70s. Mm-hmm. Now it's no longer the case. And the industry is trying to respond to multiple 100,000 acre plus or million acre fire in, in Alaska this year, uh, complexes. Right. Wow. So it's much larger for that seed to now have to travel. Well, what comes in in, the, in, the, in place of that, if there's not a lot of uh, existing seed, it's either invasive species, which are very good at propagating, think blackberry bushes, Think wow. uh, Himalayan blackberry bushes to clarify, yeah. Scotch broom, that's sort of this yellow flowering thing. There's a number of other species, but those are more likely to burn because they're not adapted to long drying cycles. They're more of a spray and pray and hope they survive. And so they help start the next forest fire. So that's kind of where we find ourselves in. And we're seeing instead of 90% natural regenerates, we're seeing it drop to 60%, 40%, depending upon the species in the ecosystem. And so wow. this industry that that used to exist, that was primarily to reforest after logging, all of a sudden has been completely overwhelmed by wildfire. And wow. nature isn't regenerating as much as it used to. And our supply chain isn't regenerating as much as it's used to. And we've got gigatons of carbon stored in these forests and increasingly they're burning at greater and greater extents. That's the situation we're in. Um, just to put a number on it, like the 10-year rolling average on what used to burn in 82 to 92 was around 2.5 million acres. Fast forward to today, we're at about 7.5 million acres is the 10-year wow. average. So it's not like a cherry pick. It's very much like the average is increasing. That's a rolling average. That's that 5 million acres, about the size of New Jersey, or to put it in a forestry context, it's it's our estimation that's about five warehousers worth of reforestation. And warehousers, the biggest in timber in the United States, by several orders of magnitude, by about five, probably. So that's a you can, size of New Jersey. Yeah, five <laughs> that wow. five million acre increase. Yeah, that's we had to figure out. So I mean, swimming pools is not. I don't. I we avoided <laughs> the swimming pools here. It was like, how do we put this into a right. context that people can can understand? That's very clear to me. I think for the audience too, imagining a place as big as that state, uh, yeah, over ten years, and that that is is increasing in speed too. Wow. Yeah. So, and then prior to that, I mean, I, I kind of skipped to the answer here on where we're at yeah, yeah, present. Yeah. Previously, like where the industry evolved, and we we know this because we acquired Silver Seed which is a 130-year-old company uh, that sources seed from, from the wild. It's called Woods Run and utilizes that. We utilize that for our carbon offset projects. But the, the sort of history of the industry was that there were these very large fires that happen from time to time. They're part of the fire ecology, different regions. Sure. It's a 50-year or century-long cadence. In other regions, it's 500-plus years. But the communities that were impacted by those fires were like, whoa, we have to do something. And they started out with seed. And then they realized that they could get advantages out of utilizing seedlings grown in nurseries. So the, the government promoted that and built nurseries. 
So then there was a, and then learned, oh, okay, orchards have this advantage in that for timber, we can get trees to go grow faster, taller, straighter. Well, well, now we're starting to veer away from that in the sense that orchard seed is is not as climate resilient because it's a much lower genetic band. It's, it was it was bred like, through old school breeding to yeah. be be those species that are only the ones that grow the fastest, the tallest, the straightest. Right. Well, that leaves you a lot more susceptible, a lot, a lot less genetic diversity to respond to freezing, insects, drought, right. etc. Right. And so now we're starting to see a return back to a like woods run or seed collected from the wild is an advantage in its genetic diversity. And that's what Silvaseed does. And that's what drone seed puts into its seed vessels. And we get way deeper into that with seed zones. Um, we get asked a lot, like, is the seed native? Like, there's a big concern there. And it's like, oh, it's, yes, it's native. It's so much more than that. Like, yeah, yeah, we, we have to to have the maximum viability for the project over the long term. We try to utilize seed from a seed zone that is as close to a fire as possible. So the U.S. Forest wow. Service and wow. the first in the 20s, then in the 70s, they updated them. They, they created all these seed zones. They're about the size of counties, but they're not a political line. They're a ecological line. So like, is wow. the is the seed zone sort of an eastern facing mountain range? It's western. And the reason for this <laughs> Interesting. is transplanting dug fir from like Washington to California would not be a good idea. The, Doug Fur is native to both ah, states, but right. Washington, it's going to have it, that those genes will have evolved very differently for more of a northern climate than California, which is ah. a much drier climate. Or you can think about from like inland or from the coast to inland, like or vice versa. Like if you take something from a high elevation around Mount Shasta and then you move it to the coast. That seed, those totally genes different. are designed for high elevation and low oxygen in the atmosphere. They're not designed for more salt in this in the in the water and in the right. uh, in the soil. So wow. Yeah. But what I also heard was you said it started at this like community level. It sounds like it's gone to a government. So I just have never thought about it. But when you say, okay, we're going to take these seeds and move them all over or put them in these, is this the U.S. government doing it? Is it the state government? What happens if like a neighborhood or a town burns down? Like who reforces that or who pays, I guess what I'm saying, who pays those workers out there putting these seeds in ground these days? It's the land manager or the land owner. I make that Got distinction it. because uh, not everybody who's responsible for that land is directly owning it. Um, state agencies, for example, who manage the land largely to pay for, at least on the West Coast, largely to pay for schools and other aspects of the state budget. Uh, right. So, are you know, who are the land managers? Small family forests. Those are some of the folks that we work with. A lot of, you know, trees grow, they're inflation resistant, they pay for colleges, they pay for retirement, um, <laughs> well, they can be cut yeah. sustainably. Small, so small, small family forests, timber companies. We work with three of the five largest tribal nations, some of the largest generators of carbon offsets uh, in the California market, and then nonprofits like the Nature Conservancy, who hold vast expanses of land for conservation. Um, yet that that land goes through fire. So those those yeah. are the land managers, and the customer journey here is. Um, a lot of the, a lot of areas we work primarily west of Colorado into Canada. A lot of the customer journey is where do I the, my forest is burned? 
where do I get seed first and foremost? And a lot right, of the areas right. where mills have shut down and timber is no longer viable because most of the mills shut down because of offshoring of jobs overseas or environmental policies. Otherwise, there's not been an investment in seed. And so there's not really collected seed available. And orchards are only transport are expensive to run and operate. So they're not necessarily there and accessible anymore. So what we've been able to do is with land managers in any of those types, but specifically in those in those areas where mills and logging aren't able to happen, we're able to help help customers co- organize and collect seed. And wow. seed for temperate conifers is a little difficult because they only mast uh, or or provide plentiful viable seed like every seven years, not every wow. year, like corn, wheat, and other things. So you have to like right. organize these collections, go out there, and we there's a couple different methods to collect. But we organize those collections, get the seed in, process it at Silva Seed, and then the next step is, well, great, I want to deploy it on the land, and I and I got to figure out what I'm deploying. So that's where we use the drones deploying seed vessels. And then we also, at the same time, start the seed in the nursery at Silva Seed. We grow millions of seedlings. And then we deploy both of the, you know, we deploy the drones out. And then uh, eight to eight months to a year later, we come back with the seedlings and plant them. And then the last wow. piece is, how do we pay for it all? Uh, and that's where carbon yeah. offsets come in. Because if you're, if you're planning on timber revenues to pay for the reforestation and your trees just burned up, you can try and salvage and send it to again a mill, but if it's not within an ecological transport or distance or a, I'm sorry, economical transport distance, like it's not going to happen. And also, there's a lot of other people who will send it to like low value, like that wood's not as high a quality anymore. So where's oh, that money going to come from? And that's yeah. where the reforestation offsets come in. Got it. Yeah, it's great that you were were going there because I was trying to figure out. Yeah, so you got these small land management groups that are that are you know obviously concerned with this. How do they pay for it? And then you mentioned carbon offsets because I will admit, you know, doing some research, I've I've heard about carbon offsets for years, and I've never really understood like these big tech companies. Like they'll make a big deal out of it. We're buying all these carbon offsets, and it's like, well, great, that sounds amazing. What is a carbon offset? Like, where is it? And when I was reading through Drone Seeds' site and the things that you guys do, suddenly it clicked for me. And I was like, wait a second. Planting a tree sounds like a carbon offset. (laughs) That sounds like actually something that offsets carbon. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'm oversimplifying it again. But for the first time ever, I felt like I get what people could actually buy. They could actually buy buy someone like pay drone seed to plant a tree and to be that saying i'm carbon off is that oversimplifying it am i anywhere near the right place there no no you you've you've got it right um american canopy uh, covered this and you could plant a tree in a bucket and you can do a mass balance and the tree over time captures you can measure everything you put into it soil water etc etc the carbon is coming out of the atmosphere and those trees they weigh they weigh a lot if you think about picking up a tree. So that is a that is carbon that has been absorbed and built into the tree. So that 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 turns into tonnages over acres, and different species mm-hmm. capture carbon uh, at different rates. You, 
the same the math as a timber company would use. They look at it and they're like, <laughs> great, here's ponderosa pine. Here's this other species. What's the difference in how many two by fours I'm going to get out of this oh, acre right, right. over the next 25 to 40 years? And you could do the same instead of two by fours or board feet per acre. You can say, how many tons of carbon is that equivalent wow. to? Yeah. Um, and so that's what the trees are doing. Now, offsets themselves, there's a whole bunch of different flavors. Our offsets are reforestation offsets. Got it. Meaning Got that it. people are paid to plant trees. And those trees over the next hundred years will capture significant tonnages and they're, they're planted. We focus exclusively on post wildfire reforestation Mm. for cost reasons. All of the competitive vegetation at that site is gone. And so that is much less expensive to reforest than a site that has 10 foot tall blackberry bushes. And so on that basis, we don't have to like get rid of those blackberry bushes with earth moving equipment not great for the, you know, not as great as far as like you're disturbing the soil, et cetera, et cetera. That's carbon right, emissions. Right. You don't have to reburn it, which is expensive and uh, has risks. And you don't have to spray it, which is also like a, you know, it's a way to eradicate the foliage. However, it has its own effects if you're done wrong. So that's the, the fire has already come through. Get out there, apply that native seed across the landscape, come back with seedlings and reforest those areas. And that's how we get around, that's how we, we manage or mitigate the, the problems of nature doing less and less reforestation. Now, then the next piece is we're like, well, great. Well, that sounds like it's gonna require a lot of seed, a lot of greenhouses, and that's uh, and a, lot of, a lot of people, and that's, it's gonna take a lot of money. Where does that money come from? All, most of the vast majority of offsets that, that you or I have encountered in the past have been coming from for in the nature-based sector, protecting existing stands of trees, which is good. We want to plant, we, you know, people are very, very defensive of their national parks and they should be, and protecting trees and providing private incentives to do so is good. There, where that's come under fire of late is, is, well, you're making a promise that you weren't going to cut down these trees. And sometimes the financial incentives drive people to sort of make those promises or provide provide it when like it was questionable they were ever going to cut down those trees. And so that starts to change people's like take on that. And oh, for us, where we look at it is we're like, well, the trees are already gone. We right. need funding right. to get more trees back. And right. then what does that right. look like? So what, what our offset projects look like is we work with, um, and I'll borrow from my, my background here with U.S. Green Building Council, very similar to U.S. Green Building Council, which certifies buildings as more sustainable by following very strict criteria, there's a couple methodologies out there, VERA, Gold Standard, and Climate Action Reserve. Climate Action Reserve is what we use. It's very, uh, it's you know one of the top uh, three here, and it's very um, built into the U.S. Uh, system of, of which trees it's looking at, et cetera. And oh, what we do under a project is we put a conservation easement on the property, which increases significantly the amount of tons that the climate action reserve will allow for the property. So that is, and then there's a hundred years of funded monitoring that's done by nationally accredited land trusts that gets a big chunk of capital, just like a university endowment. It puts that capital and pools it with other project capital into the market. It returns, you know, seven, 10%, some, some percentage each year, which pays for the annual site report and then the site visits 
every five years for the next hundred years. So that's that's the long term. How do we fund monitoring for the next hundred years? And then there's a couple of other assurance mechanisms for buyers of these offsets. And we could talk a little bit about why companies buy offsets. I'm happy to come at it hard and be like, why is it not just virtue signaling? I'll take that question. I love it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the that's some of the when we can talk about some of the assurance mechanisms as well. It's like, well. What happens if a forest reburns? Like that is accounted for just like auto and medical uh, health insurance. Wow. So, yeah. wow. Love it. Well, I mean, it just, it makes a lot of sense to me because for the first time ever, I really was able to connect all the dots from big tech company wants to offset, you know, their server farms and all the energy they're spending with carbon offsets. But what are we buying? Oh man, we're paying someone like drone seat through this huge mechanism to plant a tree or thousands and, and truly, truly, take in that carbon. And I, I just, I, I loved connecting those dots there. I think there's so, two, two, two things on this that, that I want to touch on. One, uh, it, Grant, you described this, the financial flywheel. So that in some way was the summarization of the financial flywheel, what's going on. And then number two, carbon recapture on a small scale, Grant, like if I'm, let's pretend I'm, um, you know, like a clean uh, makeup company, like I, I use clean products and, and they talk about the carbon emissions that they save or are reducing because you're using their product. You mentioned in a chat, it could only be a feel-good product. What do you mean by that? Is that related to the scale of the carbon being too small? Well, I guess where I'd like to take that, I think if I'm interested in a question, you clarify for me, is like kind of like, what's the value to, to the buyer of the offset? No, it, more of I'm a company and I claim to... I'm trying to think of a, a different example. By using my product, you're reducing the amount of carbon if you would have used a, a similar product that doesn't have this element in it. Is there a too small of an impact? Like if I if I only save like 100 tons of carbon a year as a product, like by using my product, is that too small of an impact to to really make a big dent in what's going on right now with climate change? I would say the mitigating the worst effects of climate change is not going to be solved by a silver bullet. And so that while all of the impetus of being sustainable should not be put on a consumer, it should be put on our energy and infrastructure and our political systems. I will say that, that those actions are valuable because they provide funding for, in mass, they provide funding for much greater action in the same way that a GoFundMe for any cause or campaign would from, you know, multiple, you know, couple dollar donations. We'll take, for example, Shopify, one of our buyers. They've purchased for themselves, but then they are also utilizing the Planet app, which is an app available on their storefront for all of their merchants to run their commerce through Shopify's uh, payment systems, et cetera. They'll allow you to, for a couple bucks a month, they'll analyze all your shipping uh, for the month. And they'll say, look, you'll, we'll charge you a couple cents for per dollar for nature-based solutions or a couple cents more for nature plus tech, direct air carbon capture, or a couple more cents per dollar for nature plus tech plus frontier, things that don't necessarily have a carbon accounting set up for it yet, but we know we'll need in the future. And on that basis, like those pennies on the dollar in aggregate across all of what Shopify does allow, allow for a much greater impact that funds work like ours 
in to the tune of uh, millions of dollars. And so that's wow. that's something that I think like those actions are powerful in the same way that any collective group of people doing something. Now, mm-hmm. at the same time, is Planet App going to, this is where it gets a little dicey with the marketing. Is Planet App going to mitigate all the effects of climate change? Oh, hell no. And so right. on that basis, like there is a, there. but what, what can it drive is it can drive decarbonization it can drive reforesting and locking up more tonnages it can it can help us make those transitions but the the largest actions that we can take are through our political infrastructure in changing Mm -hmm. the rules of where does our energy come from how how are Mm -hmm. buildings built etc some of those very large areas of energy and finance yeah great point great point yeah it's both micro and macro uh it all needs to be happening Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon.